Aloha, this is Kelly McHugh White with the Public Art Podcast, here to introduce episode 10. Today, I sat down with John Rowell in Wailuku Town to learn a bit about his story of becoming the executive director of Maui Chamber Orchestra, which was formed in 2010 and moved to the historic Iao Theater as its new performance home. John has sat on my selection committee for Small Town Big Art, and we are currently working together on the Wailuku Arts District Management Plan Advisory Committee, which we are creating to help arts-based businesses, organizations, and support systems come together to coordinate, advocate, and thrive in a concerted effort. A string of recent emails about a current survey that we've distributed to collect community feedback about the Wailuku Arts District Plan made me realize that I need to sit down in a room with this heavy thinker and attempt to capture some of his truly soulful sentiments about why all of this matters. John is an alumni of Punahou, Stanford, and Cornell, where he was a doctoral student researching the neurophysiology of music. He is a philosopher, a certified yoga teacher, and just a sweet, smart, caring man. Please enjoy. Rolling. Good morning, John Rowell. Good morning, Kelly McHugh. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, thanks for being on the Public Art Podcast. My pleasure. We have been corresponding for a few years now, and I know that you have a lot on your hands, and I don't always hear back from you right away. <laughs> but when I do, I get these like soulful, interesting, thoughtful messages that I'm sorry to say that I either share with Aaron or Sissy or both of them. <laughs> That's okay. Because I just want to know more about you and I just find you so fascinating and creative. So I'm really excited that I get to know you a little bit better today and that we get to chat a little bit about this Wailuku Arts District Management Plan that we're on a committee together for. Awesome. Um, so I'd love for you to do your own introduction but not just any old introduction. This comes from this um, talk story process that we are pivoting to in small town big art right now, where you're trying to find authentic moments of connection with the person across from you that you're recording a conversation with. Mm -hmm. So one of the most difficult yet enlightening questions on that list is, tell me your life story in four minutes or less. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you keep track of time, but I, I think I'll, uh, I'll be Pretty good. So, um, born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, but just there for like six months. Um, uh, my dad, shortly thereafter, um, he had been in the Marines before, uh, and then he re-enlisted in the Navy. So I became a Navy brat. Lived up and down the East Coast um, a bunch. Um, first moved out to Hawaii when I was in fourth grade and we were here for just two years that was over on Oahu uh, and then the Navy moved our entire family of six back to the East Coast because I guess that's what they did we were there for two years and then back to Hawaii um, so I, I was in Hawaii for seven years growing up including eighth grade through high school so it kind of it felt like my the place where I grew up mm -hmm. even though military brats like move all over the place and feel you know, rootless. And my older sister, I think, went to 11 different schools wow. uh, before she graduated from high school. And that's just the life, you know. I got to college and met people who had grown up with the same cohort all the way through, and I'm like, what is that even yeah. like? You yeah. Know? It's, um, anyway, um, 
Yeah, I went to Punahou School. You know, I'm now sort of embarrassed about the names that are on the buildings there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the more I know about the involvement of those families. Um, went to college in California. I mean, I loved growing up in Hawaii, but I wanted a bigger place. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Kana went to, okay, so backing up, I started playing piano at seven. Mm -hmm. I think we'll get to this maybe in a later mm -hmm. question, right? But so I was a pianist all through high school, kind of was on this programmed track to be a concert pianist. I was pretty good. I won two state competitions uh, in eighth and ninth grade. Got a little tired of competition after that. Um, but uh, I also I had a pretty active mind and I was interested in other things. So um, I went to Stanford, uh, sort of programmed to be a doctor because that's what smart kids do, right? <laughs> um, and in my sophomore year, I was taking a break from the pre-med courses because I hated that whole culture, although I liked the science, and I stumbled into a philosophy class called God, Self, and World, which kind of changed my life. It was the first time, I mean, I'd always been a good student, liked school, but it was the first time in my life that I was encouraged, actively encouraged, to question everything. Yeah. The class was called God, Self, and World, I think maybe I just mentioned that. Anyway, so it, it was literally everything. And uh, the professor was hilarious. Um, and so that was great fun. And uh, I majored in philosophy. I had my fingers in music all along. My work-study job was actually to be an accompanist for voice lessons mm -hmm. in the music department, sang in choirs. Um, and then when I graduated, I was kind of torn between like the medical path or the philosophy path. I ended up choosing philosophy. I went to Cornell for mm -hmm. a PhD discovered after about two minutes that I hated it, in part because the culture of that department was very different from the culture at Stanford. Stanford had wonderful teachers who really valued the undergraduate experience, and uh -huh. Cornell was a department that was, they were both top 10 schools in the field, but Cornell was very much about its, you know, sort of well-known professors. Interesting. And they would just get up and literally read lectures. Yeah. And it was, I you know, I'd gone to, Grad school in philosophy, thinking that it was about like truth, justice, and enlightenment, and I discovered that the academic field of philosophy is really about advancing a very tiny little s discussion, a nanometer for an audience of about twenty-six professional philosophers. Interesting. Plus teaching. Mm -hmm. The teaching part really appealed to me, and it always has. So I I stumbled out of that program, and worked at Cornell for a long time. Uh, just happened to get a job as a managing editor for a journal that was published at Cornell by the philosophy department. But I, again, kept my fingers in music. Um, eventually got to know the director of, the new director of choral music there. He asked me to help out when he went on his first sabbatical. Uh, and then I just stayed. And I, um, at one point he said to me, you have all the skills, just get the piece of paper. Because all, like, all my pieces of paper had to do with philosophy, mm -hmm. right? So, um, <coughs> so I went back to grad school uh, at Cornell um, and uh, was in a DMA program, Doctorate of Musical Arts. I finished the master's. I'm apparently not a person who likes to finish <laughs> doctoral degrees, although I, mean, I think I have the skills. I just, anyway, uh, but I was, 
all that time, I was on the East Coast for three decades, and I'm not a winter person. And Ithaca, as you yeah. may know, is described as centrally isolated and is very gray and snowy. And all this time, my sister and my parents had been living in Hawaii, so every winter break, I would come to Maui. Yeah. was always looking for a way to come back, but it's hard, you know, uh, to, even if it's a place that sort of feels like home especially if you're in a field like music. But I came back in 2016 mm -hmm. and have s sort of been my working my way into, yeah, various music and arts endeavors here. So is that how we do? You went two minutes and uh, 30 seconds over time. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> God, I don't know what you <laughs> Thank goodness. God. Okay. I think it's a loose uh, boundary there <laughs> for the four minutes, and that's the fun part, that it just kind of forces people to condense the most important yeah. pieces of their life, the benchmark. So it was super interesting. Unfortunately, I have so many more questions that I now have to repress <laughs> so that we can get through this. Um, so tell me, and you started to, where and how your art life originated. Yeah, so seven years old, um, really driven little kid. Um, sometimes I wonder where that drive went. I mean, my mother said, she was the only mother on the block who had to say to her kid, put your books down and go outside and play. Yeah. Um, and uh, th uh, the story is the, the pediatrician said to her, if you don't find this kid something to do, he's going to have an ulcer by the time he's <laughs> seven. <laughs> so I started piano lessons. Um, and I really took to it. You know, it just, um, I don't know. I mean, they say music recruits more parts of your brain than most other activities. Yeah. I think that probably was a good fit for me. Yeah. And I had some natural affinity for it and uh, my my nerdy little drive meant that I was pretty tolerant of practicing, you know, mm -hmm. you know to get good. So that was yeah. age seven. Um so I had this mentor in a in a previous life when I was working with the National Guild for Com Community Arts Education in New York, which was a think tank of 500 community arts education organizations and we wrote books about creative aging right getting um, the elder community into cumulative music mm -hmm. or visual arts or performance arts um, classes actually results in less medications for mm. example mm -hmm. right which takes pressure off medicare which puts more money into the nea right yep. and the neh which is very exciting for the federal government my boss was called Ken Cole, such a fascinating, awesome mentor of mine. Um, I bet the two of you would hit it off. Mm. He felt very strongly that um, music was the top art form. And so when they found me and hired me as a visual artist, mm -hmm. um, they were really excited to have a different perspective brought to the table, but I was still kind of, you know, with, with you know, through gritted teeth, you know, there was there was a little bit of snickering, right? Like, haha, visual artist. Let's see. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> I mean, huh. I don't really get that snobbery because in like I think in some ways, like the painter is, you know, like that's the true art kind of in creativity. I mean, I don't know. I think it's It wasn't snobbery. I don't want to put that on oh, okay, him. Got it. But it was a fun hierarchy within the office. Got it. And I will say, I took piano lessons and guitar lessons for five years, and I can't play you anything, mm -hmm. not even Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. So my question for you was, as a, am I broken? Because <laughs> you have studied very, I mean, you, you can talk a little bit more about what that dissertation entailed. But I think the key word that I um, 
that I circled in here was bio. Give me one second to find it. What is the word, John? Was it biomusicology? Yeah, yeah. biomusicology. Yeah. Right, and in your thought process or in your study and research, you, you found that it's inherent and intrinsic in all of us yeah. to have this propensity. Yeah. So that's why I thought, oh great, now John's gonna tell me how I'm broken. <laughs> well, the I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm sure that you are musical in some way or other, like almost no human being. There are, I was, I was kind of in preparation for this um, reading, you know, there are limited cases of people who are, um, uh, have amusia, <laughs> right? Like they're tone deaf, right. um, or they don't have rhythm, but I, uh, it's a very small percentage, and um, I'm guessing probably you, you can dance over them I can with dance. the best of them and clap and yeah. probably sing along to the radio and stuff, right? So, I mean, if no one wants me singing along <laughs> to the radio, <laughs> but I do it proudly. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I would say definitely you're not broken. Okay. Um, and I, uh, when I, you know, we were for the audience, we were kind of talking about how this discussion might go, and wh when I s saw that, I thought, well, I mean, I feel like with the visual arts, I have no capacity or experience. Like I can look at some art and mm -hmm. say, well, I, that, that really appeals to me, mm -hmm. but in a very like visceral way, I don't know why, I don't, <coughs> I didn't really have the opportunity or didn't take opportunities to study art. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it doesn't just sort of grab me the same way that music does. Yep. So I, I get that and I don't feel like I mean, for me, that feels like a sort of a, uh, uh, maybe I'm broken <laughs> <laughs> in, well, a w in a way, you know. Maybe this is a nice moment to promote the work that we do as arts administrators, right? Which isn't that we find the magicians in the world that are born into this talent, but we really promote kind of that cumulative experience, yeah. right? And the education and the nature and the nurture portions. Yeah of being involved in the arts. Um, not many people are born with Picasso-like talent, mm -hmm. right? He was a classically trained realist mm. before he ever got into you know, cu cubism and impressionism, uh -huh. for example, yeah, right? And right. I'm sure the same goes for many, not all musicians, but many musicians. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Really tough practice. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I found that, I mean, I could sort of go to a museum, because if you're a cultured, educated person, you're supposed to go to a museum and stand there in front of things <laughs> and appreciate the art and like a lot of time I would be like okay that like there are aesthetic features of that that are appealing but I don't yeah I don't really understand it and then I one of my best friends ended up moving to Florence and got trained as an art docent there which mm -hmm. I don't know if you know but th like that's a big deal yeah. there if you have to be licensed you have to do like 9,000 hours of classroom stuff all in Italian yes and I, I visited her once and she took me around to, you know, in Florence, you walk into any church and there's amazing art on the walls, mm -hmm. right? So I think we got into the Uffizi for like 15 minutes mm. before it closed. But in some of these other places, what was great for me was having her explain to me like why what I was looking at was an advance in the practice of painting because she was looking at some really early stuff. Yeah. And then that was cool. I started to get it. Yeah. You know? I mean... I can I can you know draw things in 3D, but I'd, I've never really felt this need or pull or capacity for 
actually creating visual art myself. Mm -hmm. Like I have another friend here on the island. Like if she doesn't get out and paint pretty regularly, you know, she doesn't feel like healthy. Yep. <laughs> right. And um, I've never had that. Yeah. That's prob so I think we're it's safe to say we're twins, right? In terms of the way you approach visual arts and maybe the way I approach not just performing arts but the music arts. Yeah, the sound appreciate arts. them, yeah. appreciate them, love being around them. Don't see the all of the nuance and don't have the propensity to create to at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, it lives in my brain somewhere. What about the propensity to like sing along, Connie Capula? You're singing in somebody's backyard, or again, I will sing all day long. But I've been asked very <laughs> kindly <laughs> and patiently to maybe keep that to myself. So if you come sing with Maui Choral Arts, <laughs> I'm going to put you in the back row. <laughs> I think I sound great, but my loved ones tell me otherwise. Um, and so the spark that prompted your return to Hawaii was this, these, these annual visits to your mother and sister and kind of, was it the position? Um, and then uh, I knew that, so they, they were very involved with Kevlati Church down in Makana, mm -hmm. which is, um, I don't know if you know, but it's just, there's strong mana there. I yes, mean, they're like I the very there. first time I walked in there and they uh, blew the at the start of the service I just tears welled up yeah. like I had enough experience with Hawaiian music and a little bit of culture even at Punahou <laughs> yes um, um, to get that you know but there, there's always been about that place the thing so over the years I would help out with the choir or Christmas sing or play or whatever and the music positions there opened up and I knew that and it was also a time when my sister was working for a while in California and her house here was available for house and cat sitting so the universe kind of aligned for me to come back with a place to, s to live and some income to get started yep. you know and that's kind of the timing of it you followed the cues a little bit yeah, yeah you know I mean I don't know if this is your experience but you can kind of stress and angst about like what to do when but in my experience um, I'll go through that stress and then somehow the universe provides yeah so that's been my Hawaii story which we don't have to get too deep into but for sure everything up until I think the decision or moment where I finally moved here permanently was hard work <laughs> and a lot of decision making that was tearing me apart. Um, and once I mm. kind of went with the flow, instead of trying to fight against it, things really worked out yeah. in my favor. So I guess that's what that is. That's listening to the universe. Yeah. Not to get too woo, but yeah. that's part came, of that. And you moved here permanently? <coughs> in 08, I came permanently. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I did an independent study at a visual arts center in 06 while I was um, at NYU's arts administration program. And I was in a very long-term relationship in New York. I, I didn't plan to come back, but that director then became the director of Huino Eao Visual Arts Center and said, come anytime, we've got a job for you, hurry up, get over here. Yeah. And finally I committed to one year, and awesome. that was about 15 years ago, so. <laughs> so we were in New York at the same time, about It sounds like apart. it, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And I went to school at Binghamton which is an hour from Cornell. Oh, yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time in uh, Ithaca. I took some voice lessons for a while with the guy who taught it. Binghamton, so nice. Yeah. yeah. So we have a lot of intersections. That's interesting. Did you grow up in the East? 
Were yeah. you used to that weather? Oh yeah, right. I grew up in Mayapac, which is a suburb of New York City. My parents are Bronx and Manhattan, so and then uh, I lived in Queens for ten years before I came out here. Yeah, very different uh, weather. I actually don't think that the the part of being in that community and dealing with the level of uh, visitors is very different than being here. I find a lot of commonalities with populations mm. and that, um, I don't know, that invisible line between who's from here and who's not. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of that where, yeah. where I grew up. Yeah. Uh, I did want, before we moved into Arts District World, I did want to hear about this quote that I read from one of your old bios, because I did some um, in in internet you stalking did. on you. Yeah. I didn't know that stuff was <laughs> still out there. <laughs> when not in the library or at choral rehearsal, John learns Ghanaian music with the World Drum and Dance Ensemble, practices yoga, and indulges his love of beach volleyball as often as Ithaca's weather permits. And I wrote, say more. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, grew up in Hawaii, went to college in California, so, like, volleyball was just a thing I liked. Um, so that was that. And Cornell actually had some pretty decent sound courts sprinkled around the, the campus. I mean, Ithaca's gorgeous. Ithaca really is, for, like, the three days of spring and then three months of winter, it is, yeah, yeah gorgeous. And even, you know, people love the fall. And if you like winter, it's also gorgeous then. I just, <laughs> God. Um, um, the, let's see, um, when did I get into yoga? I guess I got into yoga as kind of more, well, I'll do chronological order. Uh, so I went back to the to grad school in 2006 in music and kind of early on in that, I don't know why, really. I just, I think, I, I like to make connections with different kinds of music. So, um, the percussion guy at Cornell was teaching um, Ghanaian drumming. Um, he was his <laughs> white Irish dude from Boston, uh, but he had really great chops, and he had somehow, um, I think when he found out that he was going to teach the course, he found this guy, I don't remember, remember his name, he's at Binghamton actually, who had done all of his ethnomusicology research mm. in Ghana. So this guy, James, took uh, Tim to Ghana for like a quick little crash course in uh -huh. drumming. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen this kind of drumming, but it's, um, it's multi-layered, like six or seven different instruments, different drum types. And then the big, most famous in instrument is the gankogui. It's a two-belt cowbell. Um, and I mean, I just did it because it was a thing to do. Yeah. Uh, I thought it'd be fun, and man, it it completely disoriented me. Huh. Like, uh, you know, you start the semester and you're learning just a kind of a basic pattern, but each of the six instrument sets is doing different things, and even in a four-four bar that we would call it, I just uh, it got so busy, especially once you add in like the drum soloist, who's uh -huh. like improvising like crazy I, I I couldn't I couldn't find the beat in a bar which is pretty <laughs> embarrassing for somebody who's in grad school on music <laughs> I mean I'd be we were like doing these performances out on the quad and I'd be sitting next to Tim because you know we were closer in age and um, I'd be like where am I <laughs> and he's like just here you know and it's just a simple like dum bump 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 but then if something weird happens you can get lost you know yeah. 
uh, and that was it was so wonderful for me so the you know I made it through that semester it was fun you also do this all this crazy dancing stuff which is great and the fun thing is or the weird interesting thing is this is all funeral music huh it's what it's what the local band will come and do play for a weekend when somebody dies yeah. and it's like um, it's it's kind of like a New Orleans wake maybe yes. is the closest thing in this country that I can think of everybody's just wailing and eating and dancing for like three days that's the funeral you know yeah. so um i got through that semester and then the funny thing is like when i came back in the fall it was so much easier which i think for me is proof of this idea that your your brain will struggle with something that it's trying to learn and then you give it a little time to rest and rewire and you come back and it's all of a sudden the stuff that you were struggling with is easy mm. you know? and so i did that for a couple more semesters i loved him he was really wonderful Stop me if I'm going into too much detail about anything, but one of the funnest things that we did, so because that's funeral music, um, I had this idea, and he had good drummers, but not good singers. And I had a chorale that had a lot of singers, but um, couldn't do like the most advanced music in the world. And so um, a lot of the singing for the Ghanaian drumming stuff is fairly simple, technically. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I thought let's work together and so I put together a concert that was the first half was Western art music funeral music. It was Dorfle's Requiem. So just a standard choral organ piece 30 minutes long French very French 20th century, but very much in the Western music tradition and then the second half was 30 minutes of Ghanaian drumming with his class just wailing on these drums and my choir singing mm -hmm. and we invited the whole audience to get up and dance we, we taught them a couple of basic dance steps and so this was in sage chapel yes. at cornell university and the floor was moving Yay. for the second half and it was i mean tim later said to me like that was one of my funnest experiences at cornell to and for me that was like because I always think music is music. Good music is good music. And like, screw the genre and the rules of concerts. You yeah. Know? So, um, well, good music is good music because let's, let's explore that for a moment. What is the point of music? Right. Well, that's the whole biomusicology connection. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that was just that whole experience with Ghanaian drumming was a perfect education for me in the value of doing a different kind of music. It, I mean, that changed the way that I experienced rhythm in the music that was sort of more home for me, mm -hmm. more familiar. Yeah. Just really gave it all sorts of nuance and flexibility and beautiful, cool. And, you know, you're, I mean, Tim was really clear that you got to be careful about um, sort of co-opting another culture and like, so... And, you know, he was also very clear that he was, like, barely two steps ahead of us in what he was teaching. Uh -huh. But I think that if you go into another cultural practice with respect and humility, it's okay to learn it, you know. And we would get, we actually got, um, thanks to James, whose last name I can't remember, from Binghamton, he would get actual Ghanaian students at Binghamton, and they came down, and, oh, man, 
the things those guys could do with a cowbell nice. on, on like a stick and two bells and their knee, I just would blow your mind. Oh, it's that's so much incredible. fun. It was really, yeah. really fun. Um, so I think like the world needs for cultures to get to know each other, yes. right, in general. And um, it, music always benefits if you're getting ideas from other sources. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, okay, we're going to pivot. Kay. Are you ready for that? Yeah. I want to be very respectful of your time because <laughs> I know that you have an appointment after this, yeah, right? Yeah. So you maybe just let me know since you've got a watch got on it. there. But we have been working together for about two months now on the Wailuku Arts District Management Plan. We've got a committee of folks representing performing arts, visual arts, so performing meaning music and theater, mm -hmm. um, county, history, Halawa EV arts, and then a local business woman who's also focused on visual arts. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got a nice solid group of people that are coming together initially to, to create this SWOT analysis, right? To identify the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats within the quote unquote district as it lives today, right? And ultimately, I mean, I have three main ideas for this arts district is really to organize, to advocate, and to thrive, right? Yeah. As, a, as an organized unit, right? I think a lot of people are asking me about tax incentives or district overlay zones or you know, future programming, where will First Friday go? And it's like, well, that's all way in the future, right? Right now, we just need to come together um, there's seven performing arts organizations. There's at least four different visual arts organizations. And there's some really nice restaurants and bars and businesses that we can all start to collaborate with a little bit better, yeah. right? To get a little bit more organized and uh, prioritize the arts in Wailuku as the instrument for revi revitalization, right? <coughs> and one of your emails recently to me, and, and one of the reasons I asked you just to sit down and, and talk to me about this in a podcast rather than a passing email that will get lost, mm -hmm. right, was you reminded me, of course, that we're always as arts administrators um, trained or asked to talk about the economic um, strength that the arts brings to communities or counties or state or feds, right? We all know it's a multi-billion dollar industry, what we're doing for the world. But really, can we can we get beyond that, right? Can we talk about the benefits of what this arts district might might mean beyond economic? So I kind of just want to hear about uh, your why. Why do you think the Wailuku Arts District would be advantageous? Can I back up one level of of abstraction and then work my way down? Please. Yeah. So. Um, <coughs> and this touches on the biomusicology stuff a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I when I went to grad school, I realized that I'm I'm more interested in what music does mm -hmm. than what it is. Like, I can geek out as much as the next guy about the compositional technique of a piece or you know how wonderful the sounds fit together. But I've always been more interested in and more moved by what the act of making music together does for mm -hmm. people, right? And this is the bit about how we are, I mean, the, the best science now is like, it really is hardwired into us because our ancestral groups that figured out that if they made music together, they trusted each other more, especially across kinship groups. Like if you're, if you're just living in a small village 
all family relations, that trust relation is pretty hard. But it turns out that living groups of about a hundred or more are better adapted mm -hmm. in the conditions that our early ancestors lived in. But that a hundred people is a lot. They're not all family. So how are you all going to work together? And, you know, somebody stumbled on the idea of standing around and beating things in rhythm and maybe singing. And just that activity puts you into alignment with each other. Yeah. Right. And then those are the people that thrived. And now because of that, we sort of all have that genetic wiring to experience music making as a thing that creates feelings of trust and empathy in ways that are actually biologically measurable, right? Oxytocin is released, your, your brain circuits are firing in sync, um, your mirror neurons are firing. I mean, it's just, it's when you feel this physical thing in a concert or a music experience, whether you're the musician who's playing or somebody who's sort of on the sidelines, it's a real biological thing that you're feeling, yes. right? So that's what I've always been chasing in my teaching, in my own performing, that feeling, because it's amazing. And I think it's good for the world, right? So for me, the reason to create spaces where that, and I'm, I'll just talk about the music, but, but I also, as we planned this conversation, kind of try to make myself think about how the visual arts fit into this too. But for now, if we create spaces where that's happening, that's good for the world. It's good for our community. Um, and you know, here's the thing where I sort of got into my little rant about who cares about the economy. I mean, I do obviously care about the economy. I want artists to be able to make a living and all of that. But like for me, the point is not to increase the consumption of art. Yes. It's to create for everybody um, this experience of connection, right? Yes. It's so hard. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm constantly thinking from an administrator or grant reporter perspective because it's chicken and egg really, isn't it? Like we have to prove that th these things are happening. You're yeah. talking about oxytocin and neurons. You know, it's like, are we gonna be able to measure those things? Probably not. I know, that's <laughs> what's so frustrating about I, you know, I've applied for grants from the Hawaii Community Foundation w and I think I'm a hell of a grant writer and I, I can like advocate for music, but they wanna know the measurements. Yes. And you can give them the number of people who attend and do surveys and show those results, but you can't it's very hard to quantify yes. without doing blood tests on everybody as they walk out. <laughs> you so know? cool. Um, <laughs> we just need those like, uh, uh, you know, futuristic body scanners. <laughs> we'll give <laughs> everyone a mood ring, John, exactly. and we'll check Th the color as they're leaving your But see, that's the thing, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that really matters more than attendance. Yeah. Like I think about... Quality. I don't know if you... Um, uh, caught the Maui Chamber Orchestra did a concert. It was a Gershwin um, musical, uh, Crazy for You, I think it was called. And we had this dancer. This was um, Ali Shore's brilliant idea to bring this tap dancer from New York City named Caleb Teicher. Teicher. Sorry, Caleb, if I'm mangling your name. Um, and I never th in my life would have thought I would utter the sentence, tap dancing made me cry. Uh. But 
hell of that guy, w I mean, there was so much joy, and by the way, incredible technique and artistic chops, but joy and heart in what he did. Yeah. And like everybody walked out of that theater with a feeling I know, right? And that's what I want to say to funders or yeah. government. Like, you just need to be in the middle of that experience once and then you'll see why it's worth doing, yeah. you know? You don't need to, sorry, I'm, no, I'm raising my voice. No, <laughs> this I know is I'm preaching to the choir, but um, like how do you, uh, uh, one of my favorite books in grad school, like um, it was by an ethnomusicologist who w worked in Peru and in that tradition, like it would be considered obscene for money to change hands around music, mm -hmm. right? We don't live in that world and we're not going to live in that world, but I get the point. Like there's something sacred and holy and the money is not the thing. It's that experience, yeah. that feeling, right? Yeah. So I, I <sighs> when I wrote that email, I would think I was trying to say, um, let's make it a place where like above all else, along with the economic development and the revitalization, like we at least keep in mind that that's a goal. Yeah. That experience, that profound, at least day changing, if not month changing or life changing experience that people can have when they are engaged in the arts, whether as the artist or somebody in the presence of art being made. I like want to hear about it, another part of this email, or maybe it was a previous one. Uh, you had your first return to EOW Theater last month, and yeah. I know that the numbers weren't where you wanted them to be, but people are still very timid about this new COVID, yep. uh, whatever we're calling it anymore, chapter. And I think you, in I think in the invitation to the performance, mm. you told your supporters, this is a great reason to put on some pants, yeah. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> Which they loved. Yeah. And then that led me to think about these unintended consequences of our COVID pivots that we all thought we were really smart to create, which was this at-home mm -hmm. access, right, right, to the arts in one way, shape, or form. So talk a little bit about, um, with regard to what we're currently discussing, will that, can that maintain this catharsis or this trust, empathy in a community if people continue to do this at home? I don't think so. Right. I really don't. I think you have to be in the room. I think you get a taste of it when you're watching a video or listening to a recording, but there's just something about being in the presence of the vibrations and, um, and I don't know, I mean, I don't want to sound too woo-woo, <laughs> but also I don't really know. Like, I'm perfectly willing to believe that, you know, we, we human beings, generate magnetic fields and mm -hmm. we that you know all that stuff happens interacts when we're in a room with each other yeah. in a way that I, I think just doesn't happen um, when the experience is only virtual yeah and I mean I we well for one thing my chamber orchestra just didn't have the resources to create credible experiences sort of for the audience at home. So we, we really, between March 2020 um, and a concert in February of this year, we were basically off the grid, mm -hmm. uh, offline, as far as our audience was concerned. We weren't really generating 
even virtual content mm -hmm. because we couldn't and also um, and this is just me and you know I was sort of the main staff person of the organization I couldn't bring myself to do it or care about it mm -hmm. enough you know it just it's like it's not an adequate substitute for the right well the without real that core value of like being in spaces with human beings how can you real how can you capture or recreate the outcomes that would actually be a really good experiment for these neuroscientists who measure the biological yeah. effects of music to see whether there is a difference between the physiological response in person and online. Yeah. Um. I cry at movies and commercials, right? Yep, right. Um, but yeah, if I'm accustomed to seeing an orchestra in one space and now I'm in my pajamas, right? Yeah. <laughs> Experiencing it on my couch. I'm so happy to still have access to it. Yep. Right? I still attended a lot of events and poetry readings and what I could, mostly out of support for the organizations, more so than the need yep. for that those emotional, um, you know, um, experiences. But uh, yeah, I I wouldn't want to maintain that level of participation. I need it to be in person as well. But I do hear a lot of um, arts organizations across the nation kind of talking about, wow, we've reinvented the wheel, or not reinvented the wheel, sorry, we've reinvented the way that we can reach audiences now, and we're going to offer a hybrid moving forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, props to them if they can do it. Yeah. You know, you need, you need good resources, I think, you to do, do that well, resources. and we're tiny. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll say that, that you know, that um, choice of mine not to pursue either for myself or for the organization a lot of virtual stuff that, w that was personal I, I have friends who um, sang with the San Francisco Choral Society online every week mm -hmm. they sang at the rehearsal and that was meaningful and valuable to them mm -hmm. so it's very much a you know a personal subjective thing mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I I don't know. We'll see. I mean, if, you know, if somehow um, Malik Timber Orchestra were to come into more resources, we could look at ways to offer a hybrid experience. I mean, my my church job up in Makoa, we've been doing that. Yeah. And it was valuable to people. It isn't, it really is not the same. It doesn't sound the same online. Um, I guess my, you know, my bigger thought about all that stuff is um, if it's so readily available at home you know not just like local arts organizations that you might feel some loyalty or connection to but anywhere it's readily available there's infinite choice and and you don't have to put your pants on like and it might be a little risky for you to go out and be in a room with people like the calculus, the individual calculus, can be very much in favor of just staying home and and sacrificing that whatever the extra juice is from being in the room for the sake of safety and convenience. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, you, we you sort of see that happening. Technology does that to us in lots of ways. We're, um, I mean, I'm old enough that I'm. Uh, 
I'm not of the generation that is uncomfortable with a phone conversation, sure. <laughs> right, or an in-person conversation, but I see a lot of students at Cornell and here, like, they don't want to have a conversation. Yes. They would rather be mediated by that device. Yes. Right? And if, and if, if our technology is already pushing us that way and then this other stuff happens, like, it really makes me wonder, are we going to get back to enough people valuing the in-person experience? Right. You know? So perhaps a good segue back to the arts district idea which is that um, we're all coordinating a little bit better when when we are having special events or programs. We're looking for pukas in that programming, right? So maybe everyone's really catering to youth, right? Mm -hmm. what, what are we doing for our, the elders in our community? Mm. Maybe that's an opportunity to think about some grant writing or some programming amongst the arts district partners, or perhaps those that are um, part of the arts district PPP can write the grant, you know what I mean, and figure yeah. out a way to fill in those, those gaps. Or perhaps we can bring more um, establishments like, like we're talking about all the time, nicer restaurants and this and that to help when there's a big opening, right? So there's a pre and a post event before each of these openings. Yeah, right. What's your vision for this arts district? Yeah. I think all of the above, like being, especially because it's so easy to be outside here yeah. year-round, um, and that makes it safer virologically, <laughs> right? Um, uh, I think just creating this, um, I mean, it's almost like an oasis of of a kind of experience, you know, what what I would call the artistic experience or the musical experience, you know, yeah. that that sense of creation and connect or um, connection and creativity and all of that. I just um, like the whole district is where versions of that are happening in yeah. in different modalities, you know, so that you're everything and everything is about connection mm -hmm. with each other. Um, I. I was, uh, in preparation for this, I was reading a book that a, a, a visual artist friend of mine gave me about, like, kind of why visual arts. Yep. Because it, it is not as sort of, you know, intuitively obvious to me to for figure you. out the connection, right? Um, is there a connection between what I care about with music and what my analog in the visual arts, who needs it for their soul, right? Yep. And I think, you know, what I was reading suggested to me that <coughs> like it's all about attunement right attunement to the world so the visual artist is visually attuned to what's out in the world or what they see in their head or to playing with a combination of the two you know like that's it's but it's being engaged with and and attuned to sure um something out in the world and and I mean that word comes from music or um, I don't know I guess it comes from music right being in tune with yeah. each other literally that's what music is about yeah. especially the way I think about it it's not just playing the notes on the page at the right time it's mm -hmm. playing them in a way so that you create this deep sense of emotional and psychological attunement yeah. with the person in the room yeah um, and so I think of like my vision for the this is maybe too abstract and, you know, this is the philosophy, the recovering philosopher in me. <laughs> um, uh, 
like I see this as a a district of attunement. <laughs> you know, it's almost like like a spa, except not with that elitist sort of connotation, yeah. right? But it's like it's a it's a it's a space to come and just experience a way of being in the world that quite frankly we can't do it all the time yeah. you cannot i mean maybe if you're a monk somewhere somewhere on a mountaintop um and somebody else is cooking your meals maybe you can be in attunement all the time but we can't we have to live our lives we have to go drive to the grocery store we have to turn on that part of our brain that does that stuff yeah. but we need in ways that i think governments and foundations don't fully appreciate we need this other way of having our brains our hearts working yep you know and so that's a very abstract woo woo way of saying what is my vision but that is my vision yeah. like this is a place where that's emphasized and so and you may get it walking into the art gallery or you you'll get it at the play or yeah. watching dance or watching hula halal in rehearsal and you know I would love to see like just pop up jam sessions on a yes. street corner at a regular time so people can say I, I want to bring my socks over to this corner and just play for a while yeah. and who cares if it's a um, the product is something that someone's gonna pay money for the experience is enhances the lives of the people who participate and probably exactly. the people who are standing around yeah you know yeah, and that, for me, I hear you talk a lot about the individual and the individual experience, um, I don't know, finding its constellation within a community and that creating, you know, the, the greater common experience of belonging. With Maui Public Art Corps and Small Town Big Art, I admit I'm so much more focused on um, inspiring questions and dialogue, mm -hmm. right? So. Um, we're really trying to move away from murals because we've really gotten pigeonholed into a mural program and get more into slam poetry and dance and performance and music and create those moments where people are wondering what's that about, how did this happen, who is this about, where are we, so that we're actually cross-pollinating a little bit more. Yes. You know, and trying to build community that way. Right, and community that's built around a sort of a sense of mutual wonder yeah. and respect and yeah. curiosity, like all of that stuff. Like, and if you back it up a s another level, I mean, I think when people are in that way of encountering each other and the world and the community that's created around kind of an artistic sensibility, you're not at war with each other. Right. You're not fighting over stuff. You're you want to cohere together which is not to say you know you want to be in lockstep with each other like a Correct. mosaic is beautiful because it's a thousand different million different pieces an orchestra is is compelling because it's so many different timbres mm -hmm. you know, um, so yeah we've heard a lot about the fear that amplifying this united front of artistic energy and advocacy in a place that is undergoing so much revitalization investment might lead to gentrification, the big G word. Yep. How can we possibly prevent that from happening? Um, uh, uh, hmm. You're having the same response as me. <laughs> I mean, like, if I, if, you know, if 
Plato had his way and the Republic was run by benevolent philosopher kings, <laughs> and I was that person, what I would say is, yeah. we're just going to make it a priority. Like, yeah. you, you know, like, this has to be, I think I've said it in some of these sessions, like, democratize the crap out of the arts, <laughs> by which yeah. I mean, it has to be for everybody um, and, and something that people feel like they want in their lives every day as right. well. It's not just access, it's like remind people, and I don't mean like from on high and from a snooty position, right, of privilege or whatever. I just, we all need to be reminded of like what feels good for us. And so create that access for everybody mm -hmm. and- um, Engagement. Yeah, and I think and I think it also it's like how you think about it and how you talk about the arts. I mean, sometimes I think, do we need a different word? Because there's such a connotation of um, hierarchy. Yes, or hierarchy yeah, and exclusion. And, uh, right, and um, education and elitism. Right. right. When we when in 2017, Maui Chamber Orchestra did a complete rebranding and and logo change, and one of our core values was like. We want to get away from this um, feeling of, you know, orchestra is for the educated and the elite, um, and it's, you know, you have to be in a certain class or position in life to get it and right. to appreciate it. Like, good music is good music. Right. Passionately played music is, uh, anybody can understand it, whether you, I didn't understand Ghanaian drumming when I started it, but I, I knew I wanted to do it. It grabbed me, yeah. you know. And if we're doing it right, and I think I'll see, I think a lot of orchestras and especially classical music organizations think all they have to do is play works by famous people, and that's going to be enough. And I'm like, absolutely not. You have to make this worthwhile for somebody who's coming to it fresh, who yeah. doesn't understand it. Yeah, it has to be relevant for them. So I, I think, yeah, maybe that's a perspective. Like, just keep asking yourself in this district, are we offering something that's going to be relevant for everybody, mm. for people that are new to it? And I think that that's will... That's a big audience. Well, ideally, yeah, um, it should be, right? Um, and, I, and I think, you know, maybe there are technical things about pricing, and I, I don't know. Yep. Like, you got to make sure if you have the $60 seats, you've got to have the $10 seats, mm -hmm. and that's just part of the the way we do it. Great. You know? Yeah. Like, we know that inequalities are bad for <laughs> societies. Mm -hmm. So we just got to say we're not going to let that happen. Yeah. Whether that, all of that intention actually would play out in the world where you don't get to regulate everything, I don't know, which is why I think, you know, Somebody should just appoint me a philosopher king, and then I'll. <laughs> you and I will make sure. <laughs> it will not be so. That's right. Well, this is the question I'm asking in a lot of my focus groups, right? So each member of this arts district plan committee is sharing a survey, which is one tool, and also having focus groups or just these conversations or even this podcast to identify some trends and some data s sets for us. Yep. How do we avoid this from happening? How do we avoid unintended consequences? So let's, you know, let's throw all of these ideas against the board and see if there are some real um, strategies and solutions that we can be proactive with, right? Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's also like it's a matter of 
including genre and art types that you know you wouldn't normally think go together in an arts district. Yeah. Like throw it all in if it's well done. Um, I mean, have you ever heard taiko drumming? Yes. Oh my God! So I also good. heard that in Sage Chapel. At you know the things that happen in Sage Chapel at Cornell. Um, if y if you yeah if you offer stuff that um, that doesn't appeal to only the sort of gentrified yeah stratum, then maybe that's something I don't I don't know. Do you know Brian Nagami who works with Imua Discovery Garden? I don't. He's Maui Taiko. And yeah. so, yeah, we're always trying to get him involved more in some of our public art um, events. But there are a lot of elders that are part of that group that mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're not super um, excited to be gathering up until now. So right, that's right. That's just been, un unfortunately, right? It's like the the big band aid <laughs> for why some of these things aren't happening. It's the only excuse. But. Now that we're kind of coming out the other side a little bit and we have some strategies for small groups that are still masking or still, you know, following s certain protocols to keep us safe, uh, I would love to have some taiko drumming in Kipuka Square. Yeah. Right outside EO. Right. For no reason. <laughs> because it's going to excite the air. Yeah. <laughs> in a cool way. Meaning it doesn't have to be attached to a big reveal or a big blessing or a big event. Like this is just something beautiful that's happening because it belongs here. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's another point. Make it every day. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't make that transcendent experience happen every time, every day. But you can, you can create the conditions every day where it could happen. Yeah. <sighs> Do you have closing comments? Um, well, what's your vision? I mean, I, I, the, that's not a comment. It's kind of ask a question instead of. Um, yeah. So make a I, <coughs> unfortunately, well, unfortunately slash unfortunately, have been studying everyone's arts district management plans from across the planet for five months now. So I think I see short-term vision and long-term vision. And I think in the short term, and I feel like this is, this is not novel, it's a, um, a nonprofit program that's meeting with some kind of branch of government, right? Like maybe the MRA. And we're staffing one or two people there that are arts district managers or arts district coordinators that are speaking with every ED or every chair of each of the arts entities throughout Wailuku Town. And just, this is the short term, starting with a unified website that talks about all of our events, all of our programs, identifying, like I said, the pukas, identifying opportunities, and ensuring that we have many more First Friday-like events, mm -hmm. right? So there's more things happening that are inviting people um, yeah, just more regularly that have everything happening, right? And that really helps feed into each individual market or audience. Because I did hear some feedback from um, a member of, I think it was the Wailuku Performing Arts Alliance saying, let's merge our donor lists, let's merge our marketing lists. And for me, it's like, whoo, my God, that is so sensitive, you know? Mm -hmm. And somebody that people aren't supporting each of these organizations be solely because of their mission, they're supporting them because of the people that make up the organizations, mm -hmm. right? And we all have our sub-tribes that we are very devoted to and don't necessarily want 
our information to be um, available to, to, to everybody mm -hmm. just because it falls within a certain geographic. So I think that there's going to have to be a really careful um, home base for where that information lives mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. it's um, how it's best handled wi between these coordinators, right? Whoever these people may be. Yeah. So I think it looks like um, Grand Central Station of Information and Advocacy and Grant Writing. And it also looks like more events happening, coordinated events happening. And then long term, which is what I think a lot of people are kind of seeing the big arts district stereotype as, I'm thinking more about creative placemaking. So I'm thinking more about unused spaces being repurposed for arts, housing, arts, you know, spaces to create, celebrate, perpetuate the arts, right? So kind of like this huge Halau OEV arts building that might be built, but also having these pockets of places where people can live or create or practice. Yeah. Um, and ideally, the small businesses that are already existing here are getting on board too, right? So each small business might have a bulletin board or a theme. Maybe we have um, a quarterly theme that everyone's getting behind to help people understand that we're all in this together, yeah. right? Maybe the theme is um, a, a specific hula or maybe it's Bach or maybe it's an artist. You know, it is what it is, but we're all also celebrating the cumulative um, process of learning about what we're all really good at from one another, right? Yeah. yeah. Utopia. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people, you know, would could easily scoff at that, right? But it is, it is. I think it is some version of that. I, I, I used the term oasis earlier. Yeah. Um, it's. Yeah, it's about creating spaces, a space, a whole area for people to be in a way that's really um, sort of vital for our health as individuals and as communities. Right. Mm. And that's that merging, again, of, pu of public and private. So if there are future capital improvements happening, um, the arts are at the table from, from the get, right? Right. If you're building a space, where can a mosaic live in that space? or when you're not using it, are the, the floors sprung so that dancers can be here rehearsing? Yep. Or what are the acoustics like in that space yep. in case we can utilize that for music, right? So these spaces need to start being seen as multi-use spaces from the start. Yep, right. I mean, I think it's tremendously exciting. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> the idea is very exciting. I guess there has to be a lot of hope about um, executing it. Yeah, we're seeing, yeah. thankfully, uh, we've got about 250 um, survey respondents at this point. And we together had reviewed the first 100 responses. And there's not a lot of like disparate data right now. Like it's people are, are pretty focused and supportive and attentive to the just the um, introductory goals that we've set for the management plan. So I think those short term goals are achievable. Yeah. If the, the 
the, the committee keeps showing up and kind of championing those goals. Yeah. Um, and again, going to their individual, I keep saying markets, audiences, support systems, and ensuring that your audience members or your donors or your board members are also in the know. Because yeah. there's nothing worse than getting a year into a project and someone saying, why didn't I know about this? That should have known about this, yeah. <laughs> right? So a lot of it does take kind of that boots on the ground engagement with our, our top supporters. Yeah. It's hard work, but it is very motivating, I think. Um, I mean, that was just getting uh, Maui Chamber Orchestra back on the stage and hearing them play together again and then hearing the audience's reaction to it. And it was a, a well-designed concert. Um, it's hugely motivating to, yeah. to be a part of that. And to help bring that into being, so, and I, ho I hope you're getting a taste of that. <laughs> I know that you're you're kind of in the weeds with like all the the surveys and the like the technical the data and stuff, yeah, and, and all the logistics of bringing the conversation together. But I hope you're getting a taste of how exciting it is. Right on. John Rowell rhymes with towel. <laughs> Thank you for your time today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to talk story. Unlock. How oh, did this we do? This is perfect. This is great. 103.